Open up your Bibles this morning to the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. We've been looking at Paul's second missionary journey over the last some time. Journeying verse by verse through this wonderful book. Last week we saw Paul and Silas make their way to a town named Berea. Let's pull up a map here so we're familiar where these towns are. This is Paul's second missionary journey. Zoomed in on this northwest portion here. Berea there is at the far top left. There they encountered Jews who were not Christians yet, but they loved God's word. And they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so, if Paul, what Paul was teaching. They heard the gospel and many of them believed. This angered the Jews from Thessalonica. They came down and caused a riot and caused trouble for Paul and Silas and Berea. They chased them out of town there as well. And... The believers in Berea, for fear of their safety of Paul and Silas, send them to a town named Athens. And Athens is down in the lower left there in the region of Achaia, which of course is modern day Greece. And that's where we're going to pick it up as Paul and Silas are, or Paul is in a city named Athens. Look at verse 16 of Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He left Timothy and Luke behind in Berea, waiting for them and Silas to join them once again in Athens. Athens was the religious center of Greece at this time, really of that whole region Basically, every known deity to man that could be worshipped was worshipped here in the city of Athens. The city itself was named after the Greek goddess Athena, who is the goddess of wisdom and war. So Paul arrives in the town waiting for them to arrive. And he, we see that his spirit is provoked within him. It was a very religious city, a city far away from God, far away from worshiping Jesus as Lord. Matter of fact, as if you're familiar with Greek mythology, they worship the Greek pantheon of gods, Zeus, Poseidon, Apollo, Apollo, Artemis, Hermes, and 12 of them all together. In fact, ancient descriptions testify that the marketplace was virtually lined with idols, which goes with what we see Paul being provoked. Everywhere he sees, he sees the city full of idolatry. Now, for many visitors to this town, they would probably come in and marvel at the architecture, at the beauty, at the buildings. It was really a work of art, but not Paul. He comes in and is not looking at the beautiful scenery. Deep within his spirit, he is greatly troubled 
at the lostness of this city, as he sees the idolatry everywhere. He knows where the hearts of these people are truly at. At the top of the highest hill in Athens is called the Acropolis. It stood the Greek uh, Parthenon. And the Greek Parthenon was a temple dedicated to the worship of these Greek gods. Part of it is still standing today. As a matter of fact, this is a picture of what it looks like today. This Greek Parthenon, this temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Athena, is what Paul would have seen when he's in the city, looking at the idolatry of the town. Inside this temple was a giant statue of the Greek goddess Athena. You can see a little cutaway there of this drawing that tells you a little bit of the idolatry that this temple possessed. And if you were to travel to Nashville, Tennessee, there's actually a full-scale-sized replica of the Parthenon. And here's a picture of that. Anyone ever been to Nashville and see this in person? (laughs) Some of you. So, a building that's still standing, but again, representative of the idolatry of Athens. And Paul is deeply disturbed, deeply provoked within him. We know Paul's passion is to preach the Lord Jesus Christ so that sinners will be saved. And this is what he does, town after town. But here, as he has time to wait for Silas to arrive, he is disturbed, infuriated, really. This word provoked, really, in the Greek is a much stronger language than the English can even convey. The word actually is used in another word where we get this word paroxysm, which is a medical condition, which is a sudden attack or violent expression of a particular emotion. This is not a, oh, I feel bad for these people. He is angered inside, almost to be moved with great emotion. But why does Paul make a big deal of this? These are people that are worshiping other gods. This should not surprise him. But Paul was just there to increase the numerical number of the church. He was there because these people are headed for hell. He's there because these people need to hear the truth. He's there because the gods that they are worshiping are an affront to the true God of the universe. And Paul hates idolatry. He knows that God also hates idolatry. This is how God feels about it. He is moved and provoked to anger when idols are worshipped. In fact, the first two of the Ten Commandments deal with, (coughs) excuse me, with idolatry. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 through 6, the first two commandments begin this way. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. This is part of the moral law of God, applicable to all humanity. Of course, this is given to Israel back then, but this is 
basically what makes sin sin is we worship other things and other people besides God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here we see in the character or nature of God that God is jealous for his glory. He's jealous for his namesake. He's jealous for his worship. Now you and I think of the attribute of jealousy as a bad thing. Much so in our lives it is because we have sinful motives and intentions behind that jealousy. Pride and selfishness. But not God. He's holy, he's pure, he's righteous. Everything that he moves within his being is because he is rightfully deserving and worthy of all of it. He is jealous for that. Every ounce of praise that the entire universe can give is only to be given to God. He is the creator. He is the worthy one. He is the praiseworthy one. No other being deserves any praise but God. And God has said this here. No other gods before me. No graven images. See, Paul knows and he's provoked deep in his spirit. Because he knows that such things disturb and anger God. What makes God angry makes Paul angry. And the same should be true of us. What makes God angry in this world should also anger us. See, many people mistakenly think that anger is a sin. To be angry is not sinful. It's how you handle your anger and how you and what you're angry at. We can be angry at all the wrong reasons, can't we? But there are some very right and righteous reasons to be angry about and how to express that anger in righteous ways. This is the pattern that we must follow from God. Idolatry provokes Paul in his spirit, but it also provokes God. In Deuteronomy 9.7, this exact language is used. In Deuteronomy 9.7, God tells the Israelites, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Why? Because Israel came out of Egypt, worshiping the gods of Egypt. They clung to those gods. They loved those gods. They had been there 400 years, and those gods had been their identity. And when they were in the wilderness for 40 years, some might be wondering, does it really take 40 years to get from Egypt to the promised land? No, not at all. And you don't need a GPS either, although it's helpful. 
The reason they took so long was because of their constant rebellion to God. God had to take the idolatry out of them, their foolishness. They gave up on God in the wilderness. They wanted to return to Egypt where they were slaves, where they would have it their own way. And here we see that God was provoked to anger. Yeah, idols, rebellion provokes God. Number In uh, Psalm 106, we see the same thing as well. In Psalm 106, referring to Numbers 25, then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Speaking of the Jews, they provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. God takes this very, very seriously. Why? Because his glory is at stake. The glory of God is the purpose and reason for everything that exists in this world. Sin is to fall short of the glory of God. To fall short of his standard of perfection and holiness. To violate and rebel against his law and goodness. And the Lord will not share his glory with anyone or anything. He says in Isaiah chapter 42, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So when Paul walks into Athens and he sees the city full of idolatry, He is provoked in his spirit because he knows that this offends God. You know what's wrong with our world? Is that we're so worried about what is going to offend someone. But the last thing the world thinks of is offending God. You could offend anyone you want. I mean, you you could don't offend anyone in this world because it will be looked down upon. But offend God, it's no big deal. Just carry on with the rest of your life. But God, who is honorable and holy and righteous, deserves every praise, even from these people in Athens. These pagans who worship these false idols. This is why Paul is there. He's there to tell them about the true God. He's there to tell them that they need to repent of their idolatry and turn to the risen Savior who is himself God. He knows, first of all, and is provoked in his spirit because these idols offend God. But secondly, I believe he's provoked in his spirit because he is burdened for the lostness of Athens. He walks in and he sees this. And he knows himself that sin kills and destroys. Sin kills and destroys. Steve Lawson tweeted last week, and I loved it. Sin makes you stupid. It's true. Sin will make you stupid. It'll numb you to the realities of what you were created for. You have this false impression and deception that you're there to please yourself. 
and to serve yourself. But that only leads to destruction. That only leads to death. He knows that unless these people repent, they will face the judgment of God for their sin. I think as we look at the example of the Apostle Paul here in Acts 17, we must ask ourselves the same question. Are we burdened with the lostness of Bradenton? Perhaps if we were, maybe we would be more inclined to share the gospel. Are we burdened? Are we provoked in our spirit over the lostness of our city? I say, well, Dan, we're not New York. We're not California. No, but there are sinners living in Bradenton headed for the same hell of New York and California. The lostness of the city is deep. May we weep over it. May we be broken over it. May we be broken in our spirit because of the lostness of Bradenton. We don't have a Parthenon of idols that people in Bradenton visit today, do we? We don't. But we have different gods that people worship today. The gods of sexual perversion of selfishness, of pride, of greed, of drug addiction. Did you know that just in Manatee County alone, there are 600 children that have been displaced from their homes because of their parents are addicted to drugs, involved in criminal activity, or have neglected in providing a safe home? 600 children. That should burden us, church. That should move us to action. The reason that they're displaced is because of sin and the lives of the people who should be caring for them. And thank God for ministries such as guardian angels and one more child that are making a difference in this way. And we contribute and participate with them and helping these things and helping these children and these families know Christ and to have a safe place to go. But there is no more troubling idol in the world than self. You may not worship at the foot of any statue. You may not worship in some temple that stood 2,000 years ago. But every human being has the same addiction. We are addicted to ourselves. We are addicted to ourselves. We have become a very self-centered people. People who are consumed with our pleasure, our comfort, our well-being first and foremost. When we worship ourselves more than anything in this world, it only will lead to destruction. May we be so provoked as well over our own sin than the sin of our city that we will be led to repentance and to trust in the God who has saved us by his own blood. May we be like Paul, who is jealous for God's glory. Are we jealous for God's glory? Are we offended over the things that offend God? Are we angered over the things in this world that bring the trouble and the mess? 
Are we praying for a solution? Are we sharing the gospel with those who need to hear it so that their lives will be changed and the confusion will abate? Are we jealous for the souls of our city who are being destroyed by the sin of idolatry? See, all of this, Paul could have just said, oh, I feel sorry for them. Oh, I feel so bad for these people. He didn't. He was provoked for God's glory. He was provoked for the lostness of Athens. So what does he do? Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul only knows how to do one thing. The only thing that matters. The only thing that will heal the truth. He goes in there and he reasons with them. Not from philosophy or arguments that uh, Socrates or Aristotle who lived in this city and taught in this city may have done. He reasons with them as we've seen earlier in the chapter from the scriptures. For the apostle Paul it's always the scriptures that gives the answer. He goes where the Jews are, to the synagogue. He tells them the scriptures. He tells them the truth. Then he goes to the marketplace. The marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Anyone who he would encounter, he would reason with them about who Jesus is. How he died and rose again. See, Paul knows the disease. Idolatry. Sin. And he knows the only cure. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The marketplace was a very important place in this day and age. It's where everybody went. And that's where Paul goes. He goes to where the people are. He doesn't wait for people to come to him. He goes to where the people are. Where are the Jews? Well, he knows where he could find them. In the synagogue on the Sabbath And he knows where the other pagans will be of the city. Everyone goes to the marketplace. Here's a a painting of an artist's rendition of what the agora or the marketplace in Athens would have looked like at this this time. It was the hub of commerce and trade. It's where people went to share ideas and exchange the news with one another. Paul knows this, that people are willing to talk in the marketplace. They're always looking for new ideas because these people are moved by philosophy. Athens was a very educated city, a very philosophical city. They're always looking for new ideas and learning new things. And even in this rendition, you could see the Parthenon on the top hill on Acropolis And the marketplace down below, you could even see some idols that may have represented what that would have looked like. So Paul goes here every day looking for people who just happened to be there. He wasn't targeting any particular kind of people. He was just going to where sinners were. And everyone needed the same cure. The gospel. Look at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean 
and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Now these people, the Epicureans and the Stoics, were like the leading philosophers of the day. You might want to say they were the leading people of the city with the most popular ideas. The Epicureans believed that the point of life was to avoid pleasure and pain. If you want to live a happy life, avoid pleasure and avoid pain. They were very materialist, meaning there was nothing spiritual it was everything was material. There was nothing spiritual. It was only what you could touch and you could feel. They didn't deny the existence of other gods, but they said if there are other gods, the gods don't care about us or want to interfere with what we're doing. Therefore, they didn't believe in an afterlife or um, and believe that just all humans just die and go to dust and that's the end of you. You are material and you die materially and you go back to the earth, there's nothing spiritual about you. And then the other people were the Stoics. They believed the purpose of life was to be indifferent to pleasure and pain. Not to avoid it, but just not care. Don't care about your pain. Don't care about your pleasure. This leaves feeling somebody empty. They also believed in pantheism, which means that God was to be found everywhere. That God is in you, and that God is in you, and that God is in this microphone. God is in me. They were pantheists. They worshipped everything as God. God is in a little bit of everywhere of nature, including human beings. <laughs> so they both had this drive to decipher between pleasure and pain and how to avoid it or to be indifferent to it and spirituality and non-spiritual things. And Paul comes in and says, God became a man. He lived a perfect life. He died and he rose again. These people who believe not in spiritual things, that when you die, you just die. And then you're talking about some guy who rose from the dead this is foreign to these philosophers, to these educated people. So what do they say about Paul? What does this babbler wish to say? The word babbler actually is an interesting word. It has the idea of bird seed scattered on the ground. And the birds just go and pick up random little seeds. And whatever they pick up is what they eat. It's like this guy, Paul, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's like a bird who picks up random bird seed along the way and makes up a story. That's what the word babbler means to say. And maybe another modern way to say it is a, like a junk collector who drives around town looking for all the junk that people threw at the curb and he takes it all home and he makes something. They, they said, Paul, you're crazy. You're a babbler. You're taking all these foreign things and and others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. We haven't heard of his God, Jesus. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And this was an amazing thing. The word resurrection is the Greek word um, anastis, which tells us that there's a bodily, a physical resurrection. Not just a spiritual, but a bodily one. 
So here he comes, countercultural to their beliefs, countercultural to what they feel, and it takes them by storm. He's going because he's provoked in his spirit. These people need the truth. They are so deceived. Paul, this is not just common to Paul's day. Did you see the deception that's in our world today? The falsehoods that people believe? The confusion that has emanated from our society? Hmm. So what do they do? Look at verse 19. They took him and brought him to the, to, to, to the Areopagus. I practiced that word. I don't know. To the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, the Areopagus was a rocky hill in Athens overlooking the marketplace. Let's pull up a picture. It's actually still there today. Here's a modern picture of the Areopagus. It's a stony mountain-like thing that, would ov- that oversaw the marketplace down below. They would hold court up there and counsel up there. They would make decisions up there. Well, Paul wasn't on court. He wasn't on trial. But still, they brought him up here. The Areopagus means the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. Again, just the, everything's named after a god. The Roman equivalent of this was Mars. So sometimes this is referred to as Mars Hill. Mars Hill. This is the same place they brought Paul in verse 19. And said, we've never heard this before. Please break it down. And bring something new to our ears and tell us what this means. That Jesus died and rose again. Here's another picture of Mars Hill looking up towards the Parthenon on the Acropolis. These are things that Paul would have seen as he stood there looking at the idolatry of the city. Weeping over the lostness of the city. And what does God do through Paul here on Mars Hill? Again, he opens the door for the gospel to be heard. He opens the door for the gospel to be proclaimed and heard by a people that probably would not have heard it any other way. They God uses their curiosity of learning new things. God uses the, the exploration of new ideas and the philosophies that are coming into this major city. And giving Paul a window, a door to open and walk through and tell people the truth. But unless Paul has a burden These people do not hear. These people will not have heard. If Paul did not care about God's glory being violated. Or the lostness of the city. 
Perhaps churches don't share the gospel as they ought, do not get involved in their own cities as they ought, because we are just comfortable living in all the idolatry. We're indifferent to what the things are happening around us. Not Paul. The burden of the city, the burden for God, drives him to stand up on Mars Hill. I'll tell you what this means. I'll tell you what this means. We will look at Paul's sermon on Mars Hill over the next two Sundays. But I want to conclude with a story. I want to conclude and focus in on this burden, which is really the main point of my sermon. A burden, a motivation to share Christ with a dying world. April 15th, 1912, was a very tragic day. It was the day where the great Titanic sunk into the icy waters of the North Atlantic. 1,517 people lost their lives that day. The Titanic, the ship which was billed as unsinkable, and even some even said back in that day, That not even God could sink this ship. What a tragic story. 1,500 lives that perished. You probably have heard many stories of the Titanic, but there is actually one story you may not have heard of. A story of an unsung hero. A pastor from Scotland by the name of John Harper. Here's his picture. Pastor John Harper from Scotland, Glasnow, Scotland. He boarded the Titanic with his six-year-old daughter and his sister. His wife had already been deceased. Harper was on his way to the United States to attend and preach in Moody Church in Chicago. He was on board in the second class unit. At 11.40 p.m. on April 15, 1912, the Titanic struck an iceberg. Chaos begins to ensue shortly thereafter as the realization comes to all of the passengers that the boat is sinking and they must get off. Pastor John Harper picked up his six-year-old daughter and carried her to one of the lifeboats with his sister. He made sure that they were safe and on the lifeboat, and he said his goodbyes to his daughter, putting his own rescue and life at risk. Survivors of the Titanic tell the story of John Harper and what happened after that. Stories of this man not trying to save himself or get himself rescued. But this story of this pastor who ran around the Titanic preaching the gospel to all who would hear. His message came from Acts 16.31, what the Philippian jailer heard from Paul. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He ran around the Titanic as it's sinking 
telling people, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We're not sure how many people heard that message, but we know, according to some of the survivors, that many did. Eventually, the boat sank into the water. John Harper was floating in the water with a life jacket on. While he's in the water, he is swimming to different people in the water who may be clinging onto whatever floats around them. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, he tells them. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He swims in the icy waters preaching the gospel. He swam up to another man who was clinging on to some item from the boat. And John Harper said to him, man, are you saved? The man said, no. John Harper shared the gospel with him. And the man wouldn't listen to him. So then Pastor Harper took off his own life jacket and gave it to the man and said, here, you'll need this more than I will. He continued to swim up to every person he could find and shared Christ with them until he eventually froze and drowned. Four years after the Titanic went down, a young Scotsman rose in a survivor's meeting in Hamilton, Canada. And he says, and I quote, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The waves bore him away, but strange to say, brought him back a little later. And he says to me, are you saved yet? No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou will be saved. And shortly after he went down and there alone in the night, with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. May God give us such a burden over the lostness of our city that we would be so provoked in our spirit to do what needs to be done, to share the gospel with all who believe. May we be so provoked in our spirit for the glory and holiness of our God that we will stand for the truth even when it's not popular. Leading that opportunity for God to open hearts so that we can shout to all who would hear, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
for this passage of scripture, which encourages us, encourages us and calls us to take these things seriously. For the Apostle Paul in Athens, provoked in his spirit over the lostness of the city and for the glory of his God. God, and for Pastor Harper, who spent his dying minutes putting his own life in peril so that others would hear who would soon meet their maker. May we be so motivated and so moved, so burdened over lostness, knowing that we have the cure. And Lord, not everyone's going to listen. Not everyone's going to hear. Not everyone's going to accept or believe. But Lord, for the glory of your name, glorify yourself in your people. Give us such a burden that we will be faithful to the end. In your name we pray. Amen.